Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. This is a verse we could probably, if you've been in church for any length of time, you probably know this verse. We quote it often. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's read it together, shall we? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Oh, just let him have his way. Somebody just rejoice in that. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. I'll say it one more time. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Liberty and freedom can happen just from the reading of the word. There's power right there. Oh, hallelujah. Glory. Glory. Love you, Jesus. Mm. Glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah. Jesus. Glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah. I hate to go any further because I love to hear you worshiping. I love to see the Spirit moving. I love to see people not bound by fear. What it sounds like to really worship and doesn't matter what the person beside you or in front of you or behind you thinks of your praise. You're going to just praise him because you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Glory. Glory. Thank you, Jesus. Glory, 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 glory. Somebody's getting help here tonight. 
because the fact is the enemy battled me all afternoon in my mind. But we made it right here to this verse. He doesn't like people really believing this verse. He wants people to think that that spirit of fear is from God. Well, it's not. How many know fear is a liar? I said fear is a liar. What do you do with liars? You get to the point you don't listen to them anymore. Glory. Praise God. So somebody say farewell to fear. Farewell to fear. I said farewell to fear. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Mm, Glory, glory, glory. Glory, glory, glory. Let me just take a couple minutes and get into this text and we'll be done. God bless you. You can be seated. Let me start with a little historic backstory framework to this text. It takes place in Rome, Italy, around 62 AD. We understand that a cargo ship from Alexandria arrived with a special passenger on board. That special passenger had a name. His name was Paul. He was known as Paul the Apostle. He was a leader of the growing faith that they called Christianity at that time. But yet he was a prisoner. He had become a prisoner of Rome. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem earlier for insurrection and been held for two years in the Roman stockade at Caesarea. As the citizen of the Roman Empire, it was his legal right to appeal. So he opted to stand trial before Nero, who at that time was the emperor of Rome. We have no record of what was said at the trial when he stood before Nero, but I think we can assume that Paul presented Nero with a compelling witness for Christ. In fact, during Paul's Damascus Road conversion, Christ told him that he was to bear the name of Christ to the Gentiles and to kings. And right here is now that moment has come true. The most powerful emperor in the world has Paul now standing before him. And Paul has the great opportunity to give Nero the gospel. I just would have liked to have been a fly on the wall. Secular historians note that a marked change in Nero's demeanor around the time of his meeting with Paul, 62 to 63 AD, and it was not a change for the better. Jeremy, it was not a change for the better. They testify that Nero went nuts. He went insane. 
It's possible, I think, that his rejection of the gospel helped to cause his demise. Demon possession probably best explains his behavior. He ended up one of the cruelest rulers of all time. He murdered his own wife. He murdered his own mother. He became an egomaniac. He showed off his wealth by building stadiums and pagan temples in Rome until he ran out of room and needed more space. So on July the 19th, 64 AD, history says a fire starts in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. It was later reported that Nero's servants were seen running from those sheds where the blaze started. The fire quickly spread until it engulfed the city of Rome. It raged uncontrolled for 10 days and torched two-thirds of downtown Rome. Everyone suspected Nero to be the arsonist, saying that he had burned his own city just so he could rebuild it in honor of himself. That's the kind of man he was. Word began to spread that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. When the investigation began pointing to Nero, he needed a scapegoat. So he blamed Rome's destruction on the believers, on Christians, and launched a mass crusade of persecution upon the Christians in Rome. He imprisoned them. History says he burned them at the stake simply to light his torches at his parties. Nero clothed Christians in animal skins and then threw them into the wild dogs just to watch them get mauled. Christians under Nero were crucified executed by gladiators, torn apart by hungry lions. Nero's persecution of Christians was ruthless, merciless. And finally, history says in 65 AD, he arrested the two champions of Christianity, Peter and Paul. That same year, Peter was crucified upside down. A few months later, Paul would be beheaded. But before Paul's martyrdom, he's imprisoned there in Rome in the maritime prison. Tourists that have been there say that that dungeon where Paul was chained was a cold, dark, Rat-infested, sewer-infected dungeon. It was located just off the famous Roman Forum. 
So from Paul's prison cell, he could hear the mindless chants of pagan worship coming from the barbaric Roman temples. He could smell the sacrifices to their idols. But it gets worse. Paul, chained to that dungeon wall, could hear the screams of fellow believers as they were tortured for their faith. He knows that at any moment, he could be next. But church, notice what he writes. I said, do you notice what he wrote? He wrote it to his young assistant, Timothy, who had become timid for his faith. All this going around, Paul, and he writes, for God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Anybody would not have been blamed for losing their mind having to listen to what Paul had to listen to. No one would have blamed Paul, hello, for being fearful because any day that prison cell door could open and he would be asked to give his life. Praise God, but God hath not given me a spirit of fear, but of love. He tells Timothy that regardless of where you are, Timothy, if the spirit of Christ is coursing through your veins, he will drive out the fear with a supernatural supply of power and of love. And of wisdom. Oh, somebody glorify God right there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The Greek term for power in that verse is just like it was in the day of Pentecost. It's dunamis or dynamite. The spirit of fear, Paul says, is no match for the spirit of God. Oh, hallelujah. I said the spirit of fear is no match for the Spirit of God. How many know today in 2024, our culture is controlled by fear? Fear of failure, fear of other people, fear of the unknown. But Paul says that the pre pre present prevailing spirit of fear is not from God. Because God is not the author. He did not send a spirit of fear on the day of Pentecost. He sent his own spirit. And it's a spirit of love. It's a spirit of power. It's a spirit of a sound mind. Hallelujah. So let me ask you a question. What are you fearful of in 2024? Some time ago... Writer Katie Madrero published an article Todd called Top Ten Strong Human Fears. She listed the top fears uh, shared by people everywhere. 
The list in many ways is self-explanatory. Let me share them with you. Number 10, losing your freedom. It's one of the great fears of people everywhere. Number nine, fear of the unknown. Number eight, pain. Number seven, disappointment. Number six, misery. Number five, loneliness. Number four, ridicule. Number three, rejection. Number two, death. And number one, failure. Many of these fears are all tied together, such as death and the unknown and rejection and ridicule, pain, misery, failure, loneliness. We can also observe that these are mostly factual fears that describe an inner condition in the heart, right? That is, these are not necessarily fears of, of, of uh, specific tangible things. So in the latter category, I ran across a Gallup poll answering the question, what scares Americans most? In order, the answers are, number one, what scares Americans most? Snakes. Number two, public speaking. Number three, heights. Number four, being closed in a small space. Number five, Sister Jackie, spiders. Number six, needles and getting shots. Number seven, mice. Number eight, flying on an airplane. Number nine, dogs. Number 10, thunder and lightning. Number 11, going to the doctor. And finally, number 12, the dark. Now, this is obviously a much more practical list. And I can identify with part, part of it. I don't like snakes either. I don't like spiders either. The fact is, we all have our everyday fears, right? Fear is a basic human emotion. Your list won't be the same as mine, but we can all identify with some things on this second list, and we can still identify with a lot on the first. And if we aren't worried about mice, we certainly fear rejection by those we love. I'm not surprised the f that fear of failure comes at the top for many people on that first list. You know, because how frustrating to feel like you've wasted your time on planet Earth. I mean, that, that's a nagging thing to conclude that your life was a, was a bust uh, because it didn't turn out the way you'd hoped it would. So here's the bottom line. Somewhere in all of our thinking, though, God has to figure into the equation. Hello. There must be a reason that the Bible tells us in various ways, in various places to fear not. Hundreds of times. Fear is such a basic emo human emotion that many of us can constantly live in the grip of fear, in the grip of worry, in the grip of anxiety if we're not careful. So God told us to fear not because he knew that we would all battle fear sooner or later. So the question is, what role does fear have in your life? Is, is fear an Im immobilizer? Or it is it an energizer? Which do we allow it to do? 
energize, energize us or paralyze us. Paul tells Timothy that fear does not have to control you. He told the church at Rome in Romans 8, 15, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye've received the spirit of adoption where we cry, Abba, Father. So with the coming of the Holy Spirit comes our adoption into the family of God, and adoption makes us sons, no longer slaves, right? That means freedom rather than bondage is to be the believer's experience. That means if we are fearful, we are acting more like a slave than a son. Hello, church. Slaves were always afraid of their masters because on their master's word, their life hung in the balance. But oh, Paul says, you don't have to fear like a slave. Praise God. That means if we are fearful, we're acting more like slaves than sons. The spirit of fear brings us into uh, the bondage of slavery, and it strips us of our sonship. Hello? So Paul in our text says that the Holy Spirit is not the spirit of fear. So you say, well, what is the spirit of fear? Well, it is an actual spirit that likes to hover over every home and every family in this day. Sometimes it expresses itself in a knot in our stomachs that can take hours to undo. Hello? Can I tell you a little humor story about myself? It happened to me while I was helping plant a church in Taiwan right out of Bible school about 26 years ago. <clears throat> we had rented out there in Taichung, Taiwan, which is the second largest city on the island. They had apartments and apartment complexes that were four stories tall. <clears throat> And you, you, uh, we were able, me and some other missionaries, to rent an entire section of four stories. So we planted the church on the first floor. We planted, uh, excuse me, planted the church on the first floor. On the first floor was the church sanctuary and then the kitchen behind it. Then on the second floor was Sister Linda Tobman's apartment. I don't know if you can recall her. She... Uh, before she passed away, we had her for a couple weekends, missions weekends. Um, so her apartment was on the second floor, and then her co-worker, another sister, uh, rented the third floor, and then uh, another brother and I that had went there to help, we both rented the fourth floor. And so <coughs> there in Taiwan, they're uh, soft drinks. Uh, a lot of them are served in what you would think is a glass bottle of Coke. Um, but instead of having a, a lid, they're sealed with a marble. So to open, open them, you press that marble down and it falls into the 
Anybody ever seen those kind of bottles? Yeah, I think some of you have. But the neck of the bottle was fixed so that when you drink it, the marble obviously couldn't come out the opening of the bottle. And so my friend that I was there with, he thought those were very interesting. So he, kept, he started collecting them. And uh, so up four stories tall, every one of those apartments ha- out front, uh, right, it was right out on the main, well, not right out on the street, has a little uh, porch or deck, balcony, balcony is the word. And just a small balcony, you had a sink where you could rinse things out, and that's what he did. He would rinse those soft drink bottles out in that sink, and then he would line them up there to dry. And then we would hang our jeans. We didn't have a dryer. We'd hang our jeans or our shirts or something out there on hangers on the wrought iron across the top to dry. And so one evening I went out to the balcony to, I couldn't remember if it was a shirt or a pair of jeans to get off of there. And when I took that uh, piece of clothing off, the leg or the sleeve hit one of those glass bottles. And it goes, I looked out just as it goes tumbling down four stories into the street below. And right below was a Mercedes-Benz, slick, black, beautiful car. And two gentlemen were standing by it on the driver's side conversing. And as I looked over the balcony and saw that bottle fall, thankfully it landed right in front of the bumper on the asphalt and just obviously exploded. Of course, those gentlemen, they... They began looking around. They didn't know what happened. And I saw them start to look up, so I jerked back. (laughs) Hello, I'm talking about fear. Man, I got a knot in the pit of my stomach. I went through the sliding doors. I closed the curtains. I turned off the light, and I hunkered down. I said, fear will make a big six-foot-four fella melt like a piece of chocolate. Hello. Anybody ever know what I'm talking about? The spirit of fear, when it gets a hold of you, it'll cause your blood pressure to rise like a rocket. And your courage to drop like a rock. If the shock it brings is strong enough. They they say the blood can be cut off almost completely from the brain momentarily. Causing a person to faint. Fear. In other cases it can cause. They said the blood flow to the lower extremities of the body to be hindered. So that a person does actually get cold feet see church this mysterious monster called the spirit of fear can even prove to be fatal medical science has proven that it can cause the uh, cardiovascular muscles to react in such a way that heart failure can result meaning that people can literally be scared to death 
to prove that point, author Paul Martin, who wrote a book, I believe the name of it is The Sickening of the Mind. He tells of a study that was conducted during the Gulf War. Probably majority of us in here was alive and can remember the Gulf War, 1991. It's when Iraq launched a series of what they called Scud missiles into Israel. They said many Israeli citizens died as a result of those attacks. And after that war was over, Israeli scientists analyzed the official mortality statistics and found something interesting. They said although the death rate had jumped among Israeli citizens on the first day of the Iraqi attacks, the vast majority of them did not die from any direct physical effects of those Scud missiles. The study showed that the Israelis, most of them died from heart failure, brought on by fear and stress associated with the bombardment. See, they said it was the missile's psychological impact rather than physical impact that claimed the majority of victims. That's how powerful, church, fear can be. So this silent, unseen, deadly enemy that plays no favorites, knows no friend, has no mercy. It's the sinister minister of fear. And in most languages, there isn't a noun for the word fear. It's normally a verb. There are expressions such as be afraid, to fear. But in our text, Paul uses it as a noun. It's talking about a, a state of fear, spirit of fear that's described by us living in a place called fear. You ask, why is it so important to understand this? Church, because fear and anxiety is one of the most common disorders today. Research tells us that one in every four people struggle with an anxiety disorder. So we often forget that Christian, the Christian life, how many's found out it's a daily event? Christ said, pick up your cross and follow me daily. He said in his Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. Peter would tell us that casting our cares upon Christ is not a weekly event. It's a daily event. Putting on the armor of God, Paul would tell us, not a weekly event. It's a daily event. Because every day we are engaged in a spiritual battle. What do you do when your fears seem to be winning? What if you pray and God hasn't come through for you? If we're like a lot of people, we begin to lose hope. We wonder why we bother to pray in the first place. And deep in the soil of our heart, little seeds of doubt begin to take root. 
It'll grow up into a harvest of frustration. It'll grow up into a harvest of anger at God. And that's what can happen to us eventually. Because how many know some of the best men and women in the Bible struggled with their inner doubts when their dreams didn't come true when they thought they should? Abraham, for example, in his case, you would think, when you think about it, there was no reason for him to believe that God would give him a son in his old age except that God had just promised to do it, right? The question now is simple. Will God's promise be enough? Will God's promise be enough for Abraham to keep on believing? In answer to that question, God declares to him after he had given him that promise. If you look in Genesis 15, 1, God tells him, Abraham, fear not. I am thy shield. Because Abraham's, I'm, I'm getting old. Something's going to take me out. Right? So God sees Abraham's fear and tells him, fear not. I am going to be your shield. Praise God. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I don't want you to think of a small shield that covers only the chest area here. I want you to envision a shield that stretches from head to toe. Somebody say, oh, my God is big. I'm talking about a shield that completely protects every part of the soldier's body. Such a shield offers complete protection from every attack of the enemy. If Abraham could join us here tonight, he would tell us that to have God as our shield would mean two definite things. Number one, it means he protects us in times of doubt. Number two, he rescues us in times of danger. He protects us in time of doubt. He rescues us in time of danger. And notice that God does not say, Abraham, I'm going to give you a shield. Mm -mm. He says, I am. I am your shield. Oh, somebody get a hold of that. The very God of heaven says that I'm going to be your shield. That means your shield and my shield is an omnipotent shield. It's an eternal shield. Oh, hallelujah. It's a shield that has never been defeated. It is as strong as God himself. So we could not be in a better position, church, than having God as our shield. Who can defeat us when God... Oh, yeah. The message is certainly clear. If God is your shield, there's no need to fear. I said, there's no need to fear. It's been said a Christian is immortal until his work on earth is done. That statement means that nothing, somebody say nothing. Nothing can harm us without God's permission. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not even cancer. Not even diabetes. Not even bankruptcy. 
not theft, not physical disability, not the loss of employment, not a terrible accident, not death of a child, not any of a thousand other sorrows that afflict the children of God. As believers, we are not immune to uh, negative events. Listen, what happens to others happens to us. The difference is this. We know that nothing can touch us that hasn't first passed through the hands of a loving heavenly father. And Paul realized this when he said, if God be for us, who can be against us? I said, if God be for us, who can be against? He was saying, who can defeat us when God is our shield? God is a shield all around his people. Nothing can touch us except which God permits. So God's answer to fear is not an argument. His answer is not a formula. It's a person. That's why he said to Abraham, fear not, I will be your shield. God himself is the final answer to every fear of the human heart. Hallelujah. Praise God. Some of you don't need this right now, but you better put it in your pocket. You'll need it. Hmm? You ever wondered why God told him or called himself by the name I am. When he said I am in the Old Testament. Above all else it means that God is eternally existent. And therefore all creation depends on him. God in other words stands alone. No one can be compared to him. He has no equal. He is complete all by himself. God doesn't need us. We desperately need him. Think of it this way. To say that God is the great I am means that when we come to Him, He is everything. He is everything we need at exactly the moment we need it. It's as if God is saying, I am your strength. I am your courage. I am your health. I am your hope. I am your defender. I am your supply. I am your deliverer. I am your forgiveness. I am your joy. I am your future. God is saying, I am whatever you need whenever you need it. He is the all-sufficient God for every crisis. So it all comes down to the simple question, can God be trusted? I say he can. I said I'm going to trust him. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Somebody say, God, I trust you right now. I trust you. See, it comes down to this simple question. Can God be trusted to do what is right? Can God be trusted to do what is right? If the answer is yes, then we can face the worst that, the worst that life has to offer. If the answer is no, then we're no better off than the people that have no faith at all. And in fact, if the answer is no, or if we're not sure, then we really don't have faith. But as for me, and I hope as for you, I have chosen to believe him. I said I have chosen to believe him. Hey, I've learned that faith over fear is a choice we make. 
Church, I said faith over fear is a choice we make. And sometimes we choose to believe because we see. We have proof. But then there's other times we believe in spite of what we see. Pioneer missionary J. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission in 1865. During those terrible days, history says, called the Boxer Rebellion, between 1898 and 1901, there's missionaries over in Oberlin on the wall in the Oberlin Chapel that were slaughtered during this Boxer Rebellion. Missionaries were captured and killed. It says that during that time, J. Hudson Taylor being there went through such agony of soul. Such fear gripped him. He said that he could not pray. And he wrote this in his journal, summarizing his spiritual condition this way. And I quote, he says, I can't read. I can't think. I can't pray. But I can trust. And I thought there will be times when you are so tormented, you probably won't be able to read the Bible and focus. Sometimes you won't be able to focus your thoughts on God at all. Often you will not be able to pray. But in those moments when you cannot do anything else, you can still trust in the loving purpose of a heavenly father. So Paul says, fear not, Timothy, fear not, child of God. No one knows what a day may bring, but this we can be assured of. Our God is faithful to keep every single one of his promises. Nothing can happen to us except it first pass through the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. So if your way seems dark, keep on believing, church. Because if his eyes are on the sparrows, I know he cares for you. I know he cares for me. And I'm going to keep on, keep on believing. I got to settle down and I got to quit. In conclusion, take your Bible and join me in Isaiah 41. You okay to look at one more scripture as we close? Isaiah 41 and 10. Just Jones, you can get ready to come. Praise God. Isaiah 41, 10. Read it with me. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Praise God. There are two commands in this verse, not to fear, okay? And then there are five pillars of the fearlessness. Fear not, 
is the first command at the beginning of the verse we read. The second is, be not dismayed. You know what dismayed means? It means don't even get anxious when you look around and see what's going on. You know, as always in Scripture, there's reasons for these commands. Because commands don't hang in the air with no basis in reality. If God commands us to do something, there are good reasons to do it. And so here are the five reasons. We looked at the two commands, which is fear not, and then be not dismayed. Now, here's the five pillars, the five reasons God says will enable us to say farewell to that fear. Number one, for I am with you. Number two, I am your God. Number three, I will strengthen you. Number four, surely I will help you. Number five, surely I will uphold you. With my righteous right hand. Oh, hallelujah. Let me restate it. The five pillars of fearlessness is number one, God is with me. Number two, God is my God. Number three, God is going to strengthen me. Number four, God is going to help me. And number five, God is going to uphold me. So when God calls us to say farewell to fear, He does not leave the command hanging in the air. He puts pillars underneath it. Five of them, that's, that's the nature of biblical commands. And they come with this divine support so that fear not, God is with you. Fear not, God is your God. Fear not, God's going to strengthen you. Fear not, God's going to help you. Fear not, God's going to uphold you. <laughs> The key to overcoming fear is resting on the pillars of the promises of God. The crucial factor in our fearless living in this new year is the words of God to us. I am your God. I'm over you. I am with you. That means I'm beside you. I will strengthen you. That means I'm inside of you. I will help you. I'm all around you. I will uphold you. I'm underneath you. So over you, beside you, inside you, around you, and underneath you. Therefore, say goodbye to fear. I'm going to trust God. Stand with me. I said goodbye to fear. God calls us to joyful, fearless living. Oh, give Him praise, church. I feel the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Woo! Say it with me. You said it earlier. Fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. Woo. Woo. Somebody that's experienced fear already this year. The Lord has just stopped in here tonight. I said, he's just stopped in here tonight to remind you and say, hey, I've got this. I'm over you. I'm beside you. I'm inside you. I'm all around you. I'm underneath. Hallelujah. Somebody give him praise right there. I feel the Holy Ghost. 
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Hey, you don't have to fear. That means when you come to the house of God and you engage in worship this year, hey, let me tell you, don't be afraid. I said, don't be afraid. I don't know what they're going to think about me. Who cares? You're not here to impress people. We're here to worship God. We're here to lift Him up. We're here to glorify Him. We're here to say, God, if it hadn't been for you uh, on my side, I wouldn't even be here. But since you're here and I'm here, I'm going to lift my voice. I'm going to lift my hands. And I'm going to glorify. I said, I'm going to lift you high. Oh, somebody slip out of your seat and say, I'm going to thank you that I'm going to walk fearlessly in this new year. I'm going to walk without this fear that has bound me in this new year. Sing it. Oh, hallelujah. Whatever that fear is you've battled, I want you to be encouraged tonight, church. Fear, he is a liar. He's all around you. He will take your He's breath, beside you. Stop you. He's underneath your you. Steps. Oh, fear. 